0: my name is Christy Shriver.
1: And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is How to Love Lit Podcast. Christy is an advanced placement and international baccalaureate literature teacher and a nationally board-certified English teacher.
0: Gary is an AP, IB, history, and psychology teacher, but most importantly, he's my husband.
1: Today, we're walking through chapters 13 through 19 of the Scarlet Letter. Christy looks at these stories from the perspective of a literature teacher and lover of words.
0: Gary looks at what they may mean historically, psychologically, or sometimes just randomly.
1: So, coming to you from Memphis, Tennessee, let's move on to episode number four of What's Great About the Scarlet Letter. The title of this episode is The Power of the A, Hester and Pearl.
0: A quick recap. Episode one, we met Puritan Boston in the 1600s and what was at the heart of their society. But not really, we we're looking at it from the perspective of a 19th century Hawthorne's writers.
1: We went through chapters 2 through 8, meeting Hester Dimmesdale and Chillingsworth on the scaffold with baby Pearl at only 3 months old.
0: Episode 3, we delved into the relationship between Dimmesdale and Chillingworth, culminating with Chillingworth confirming the identity of Dimmesdale and Dimmesdale seeking redemption on the scaffold in the middle of the night.
1: And today, in Episode 4, we see the strength of Hester. She confronts both Chillingworth and Dimmesdale and forces the secret into the open, delving into responsibility-taking and changing the game.
0: All right, so here we go. Chapter 13 is really kind of one of my favorite chapters because maybe I'm a feminist. Uh, Perhaps that's the point of it. But we see Hester and... She's such a contrast to the two men that we saw uh, in the previous chapters. It starts off with her really looking at Dimsdale and noticing how weak he's become over the years. And her reflection on this is interesting to me because instead of you know, feeling sad or feeling guilty, she looks at it and she takes responsibility for it. And to me, that's what's the difference between her and these two men. She looks at them and she decides, you know, there's something that happened and then there's something that I can do about it. And that's the difference. Uh, we also see uh, that he highlights again Pearl's age, Pearl is seven. Now this is interesting from a literary perspective, and I don't know, this is, this is the literary nerd in me uh, to some degree, but the numbers in this book are super interesting. Uh, The people that count these things, and yes, there are such people, tell us that the number seven is mentioned 47 times in this book.
1: Hmm, Somebody counted those.
0: (laughs) Uh And guess what? The number three is mentioned well over 500 times. Now, from a literature perspective, and this just isn't um, uh, American literature or even Western literature, but the number three and number seven crosses all cultures and all mythologies. You can look at Indian mythology and from all over the world and these numbers kind of come up they're archetypes and number three is kind of this number for the divinity we see it in the trinity we see it in the hindu god so there's a sense of completeness of oneness uh that emerges with this and this number seven is the number of completion so pearl's seven years old it's been seven years and we're getting ready to come full circle and he's pointing this out once again so we see Hester, after seven years, she looks at what's happened to Demsdale uh, and she thinks about what's happened to her uh, and, and what has become of her and she's really going to ponder these things. Now, before it gets into what she decides to do, the narrator stops and he kind of opens a parenthesis and he talks about what the world has decided in regard to Hester and they've changed their mind about her. Um, ever since she was kind of isolated and thrown out of the world, she, w- she submitted uncomplainingly. And she took her shame and what she did with, with it, instead of just blaming other people or hiding out or shriveling up, she decided to become what, um, I guess what it says, she became quick to acknowledge her sisterhood with the race of men whenever benefits were to be conferred. In other words, whenever bad things happened to other people, she felt a a sense of compassion to them, and she felt inclined, you know, I've suffered, I understand how it feels, and I'm going to take my suffering and I'm going to make it a positive thing. So the letter was the symbol of of her calling. And the book says, they said that it meant able, so strong was Hester Prynne with a woman's strength.
1: Well, it's interesting that you bring up the number three and number seven because something that you pointed out to me when we were talking about the book earlier, uh, something I was not aware of that I think people would like to know is the whole idea that the plot is not necessarily the most important thing in the story. It's all these other elements. Or is that how you put that to me, how you stated that?
0: Well, I just said great literature is never about the plot because plots come and go and plots can be familiar plots can be redundant some of them we like some of them we don't but what we really want to read this book for or any other great book for is what is it saying about life what is it saying about me what is it that a person in the 1600s has in common with the person in the 1800s has a common with the person today in 2019 and the truth is this idea of shame and how we respond to it is a part of the human condition I have felt shame and and I've had to think about what am I going to do with that shame? Am I going to be a Hester? Am I going to rise and make it a sense of strength? Am I going to embrace it, take responsibility for it, uh, even though that comes at great cost? Or am I going to hide like Dimsdale? Or am I going to suck into bitterness and blaming, like you see in Chillingsworth? So these are things that are human, and uh, and, and and authors tell us those things. So here in chapter.
1: I think that's interesting because uh, as the non-expert here, most of us would be reading for the plot. We'd be looking for the, the storyline and maybe missing these these more subtle things. And there's a couple of things that really stood out to me uh, as I go through chapter 13 right here. Um, suffering and isolation has made Hester empathetic. And like you pointed out, not bitter like most people would have become. And Hawthorne refers to her at one point as even being a sister of mercy. Now, that's a couple of things that stand out to me about that from a historical perspective. Number one of which, um, that's a Catholic reference. And we're in, in puritanical New England at this time period. I don't know if Hawthorne meant that as any kind of a dig or not. I am wonder if the readers in the 1850s would have spotted that. And then he goes on later on in the book to, ref- to make this quote that she might come down to us in history hand-in-hand with Anne Hutchison. Now, I know that the people in the 1850s New England would have understood the Anne Hutchison reference. We referred to her way back in one of our earlier episodes. So, I'm wondering, is he taking a dig here at uh, the culture of that time period as he's contrasting that with Hester's um, more saintly attributes coming out because of suffering?
0: Well, he's clearly taking a dig because one of his... he makes This is a personal book. It's also a political book. Uh, And the political scene, or the political sense, is he's attacking the hypocrisy uh, of the culture in which he lives. But to speak to your Catholic point, um, he brings it again, you know, Catholics have a reputation. Sisters of Mercy have a reputation. You think of Mother Teresa as being um, almost non-human. They're certainly asexual. They're not men. They're not women. And so when he uses the term Sister of Mercy, that's what he means. And he's describing Hester uh, in this chapter, as basically saying she's lost what it means to be a woman. He is saying it's a tr- it's a tra- sad transformation. Her hair has been cut off; it's completely hidden. Everything that was beautiful about her. In fact, it says this: there, if had there been anyone to love her, uh, there seemed to be no longer anything in Hester's face for love to dwell upon. Nothing in Hester's form, though majestic and statue-like. That passion would ever dream of collapsing in its embrace. Nothing in Hester's bosom to make it ever again the pillow of affection. So no one is going to love her.
1: She's been completely neutralized. Yes.
0: And it says that because of that, the scarlet letter had the effect of the cross on a nun's bosom. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, yes, she's a sister of mercy. But in the sense that she's not a member of the human race... Anymore, She's been completely isolated and neutered. It says standing alone in the world. So in this sense, and this is one thing that um, when, the pure, when the people put that scarlet letter on her, they were trying to punish her and they're trying to isolate her and they're trying to show everyone we're going to cast you out and you're never going to be, you're going to be subjugated to ever to be beneath us. What this chapter points out is in reality that, A, yeah, it did have that effect. It did throw her out, but it had another effect, and it liberated her mind. It says the world's law was no law for her mind. So because they had thrown her out, she was able to think thoughts uh, that they compared to the Enlightenment, and they that nobody else was thinking. She could dare to dream, and in this sense it says the Scarlet Letter had not done its office because it was not designed to do that.
1: Which is a very interesting psychological point, because any time you take someone and you make them an outlier, they are always faced with that choice. And making uh, a person an outlier, especially in the the Puritan church sense, created a, a point of view that you could not have otherwise. And it gave her a sense of reality that those who were still back in the group think could not even grasp.
0: Right, and that's the groupthink that we're talking about. And being out of the groupthink, she looks at Dimsdale and sees that he's stuck, he's mired in that, and she says, Ugh, she could not but ask herself whether had there had not been originally a defect of truth, courage, and loyalty on her own part, and allowing the minister to be thrown into position where so much evil was to be foreboded and nothing auspicious to be hoped for. Now this is amazing to me. Because it's not her responsibility for him to be strong. It's his. But she feels sympathy because she knows he can't see it. He's stuck. Right. And she's out.
1: She's almost hovering above the situation and seeing the ridiculousness for what it is and feeling pity for somebody who can't see the ridiculousness.
0: So she climbs her way then to a higher point and she and it says this she decides, resolves to meet her former husband and this is going to be the game changer uh stories well literature tells us you know you're talking about the plot a minute ago every kid who's gone through middle school knows that there's certain things that you expect in a plot you have the you have you know the the exposition then you have the rising action and then you have the climax now they tell you that the climax of the story is the most exciting part but it actually it isn't the climax of the story is when something happens, the protagonist takes makes a decision and does something from which there is no return. And she's getting ready to get to that place where she's going to make a decision from which there is no return. And that's where we jump into chapters 14. So she goes over and she's going to confront the physician.
1: worth Oh, my gosh. This guy. Uh, so many thoughts about him as we go into chapter 14. And, and initially chapter 14 begins. Uh, worth and Hester meet. And um, she uh, is uneasy. She knows what's on her mind to do. And he detects her uneasiness. And I don't know if it's a literary theme or not, but uh, all these characters throughout the book are always having these intuitive experiences. Even little Pearl, she has some of the most intuitive experiences. And I want to talk about that later on, what that means. But it's interesting. Chillingsworth, who, if I might digress on our last discussion about narcissism, one of the traits of somebody that is narcissistically disordered, they're like emotional vampires. They're very, very good at reading people. And they're very good at reading their emotions and their intentions and when they feel moments of weakness and strength. And Chillingsworth is expressing that to her very clearly, I feel like.
0: Well, to me, but, you know, maybe this is narcissism too. You can tell me if it is. He condescends to her, and she says she comes up to her, and he says, "Why, mistress?" Uh, he says they've been talking about you, and um, they're talking good things about you in that letter, and somebody even mentioned that maybe you shouldn't have to wear it anymore. And uh, it was debated, and and I suggested I made my entreaty. I should I said that you shouldn't have to wear it. So he's going to condescend and basically take um say that he did something good for her which he did not do oh i said i would, you could take it off so he he pretends like this faux defense which of course he could he could care less about her and of course she looks at him that just bl- blows right past of him and she notices a couple of things first thing she notices that he's pretty healthy for seven years he looks really good but she says even though he doesn't look any older there is a glare of red light out of, out of his eyes as if the old man's soul were on fire and kept on smoldering duskily within his breast until by some casual puff of passion it was blown into a moment, momentary flame. And so basically, he goes on to say, in a word, the man's faculty had transformed himself into a devil.
1: Oh, my goodness. One of the things that Hawthorne has impressed me by is his ability to walk deep into a person's innermost workings and describe this slow descent into awfulness that uh, some of these characters make. I think that's fascinating to me. And uh, what stood out in this initial conversation in chapter 14, uh, Hester is going to confront him. She's saying, basically, you're doing damage to Dimsdale And Chillingworth's reaction is, what evil have I done the man? And then he goes on to say... The fact that he breathes and creeps about on earth is all owing to me. And so we see complete sublimation. Everybody in the world knows Chilensworth is trying to damage him and destroy him. But in his own mind, he's turned it into this. I've been doing all these beneficial things. He lives and breathes simply because of me. So there's a lot of sublimation and rationalization going on at that point.
0: Well, that's true. And then there's a paradox there. Because uh, when she says, well, then have... Isn't it enough? Haven't you done enough to this guy? Uh, and he goes, "No." She says, "This hast thou not tortured him enough? Has he not paid thee all?" And he goes, "No, no. He has, but increased his debt. Dost thou remember me, Hester? And as I was nine years ago?" So he's going to say, "He's no. The fact that I'm a devil is his fault." So, Chillingworth is the most responsible, f- responsibility-free person in the whole story. He goes, it's, the reason why I'm a, is a, I'm a devil is because of him. He made me into this because he did that and made me hate him and made me do all these things. And so, no, I have to punish him more.
1: Interesting observation because uh, responsibility-free people are, in real life, the people that wreck everything. And... What I see here, Chilling's has become the full expression of consuming hate and unforgiveness. And I'm impressed with how much work it takes Chilling's to hate this much. It has to be his constant obsession to plot and plan and find new ways to dig and harm.
0: And, of course, it's just grown, as hate tends to do, this idea that it's only increased. He owns the fact, my hatred has increased, my consumption has increased, everything has just gotten... Worse and worse. And of course, Hester basically says, okay, well, whatever. I'm going to reveal the secret. <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what will be the result? I know not. Uh, so she goes on to say, do what you're going to do. And, and when you get to that place in your life, do what you're going to do, then you, you have real strength and real freedom. And he he owns this. And he goes, Wow. Woman, I could well nigh pity thee, but thou, because, he's going to say, you have such great elements. I pity thee for the good that has been wasted in thy nature. So, you know, oh, too bad you're such a a nothing because you're awesome. You have these awesome strengths that I have to admire. And she goes, well, I thee, I pity you. For the hatred that has transformed a wise and just man to a fiend. And then she goes on to say, forgive and leave his future retribution to the power that claims it. And he just can't do it.
1: He can't. He's too consumed. He's projected so much of his shame onto Dimsdale. And, you know, what? he's so far into it now, he's forgotten maybe even why it even mattered in the first place. It has become his nature.
0: And of course, I love this line: "Let the black flower blossom as it may. Now go thy way and deal as thou wilt with yonder man." Then he waves his hands, and he's going to go about gathering herbs. And and of course, he has this fascination with the earth that we'll talk about a little bit later.
1: Okay. So is this wave a dismissive wave, like "Go, go, child, do whatever you think it is you need to I do"? I think or so. It, you know, I don't know. He hasn't learned to fear her yet because he will.
0: I mean, you know, that's the thing about literature. You can, in in your own mind, it's a story that is, you know, playing out in your head. And uh, I kind of take it as a dismissive wave, but it could, you know, it just says he waved his hand.
1: Okay. And went back about his business. So he, at this point truly believes that Dimmesdale nor Hester have the courage to stand up and, and take him on?
0: Uh, I think he knows that she does, but he, you know, maybe he's a little curious about what's going to happen, and he has total confidence that Dimmesdale's going to fall and crush. But what's interesting is when we get to chapter 15, uh, we start to see the symbolism of nature really kind of coming out into fruition, and this is going to be talk about the plot not being important. If you're reading for plot, these chapters are really boring. But hopefully I can make it a little bit more interesting yes. for you. So, tell. <laughs> so, when he walks away, Chillingworth walks away, Hester just looks at him and you see him interacting with nature or maybe her thinking about him interacting with nature and she wonders if every step that he takes like the earth dies, <laughs> like it goes to dirt underneath his foot because the earth god himself recoils at, the, at this man's essence. And of course, um, you see that there's a dark circle, an ominous shadow that envelops him wherever he goes. The idea being that light, God, will not shine on this man. Wherever he goes is a trail of darkness, uh, which is interesting because when we see Hester in the next chapter, wherever she goes, there's a trail of light. God's shining, God's goodness is, is wanting to point out, I like her, I hate him. And so she looks at this guy, and she sees him in this dark cloud, and she goes, be it sin or no, I hate the man. (laughs) And, you know, she thinks about her life. She had been married to him. She had been with him, uh, and she didn't hate him before. She may have even liked him before. Uh, But now she recoils, and and that's a deep, deep sense of hatred, but not in the same way that he hates because it's not going to reflect itself and this behavior of, of aggression.
1: Well, and that's interesting because the line that stands out to me, she says, I hate him more bitterly than before. He betrayed me. He has done me worse wrong than I did him. And so she's beginning to take stock of the the depth of what all this means. And, and here's what I see that's very interesting. And we see Dimsdale and Hester have, commit a sin of passion, which is a one time event short term. But what we see in Chillingsworth is a calculated attempt to destroy destroy the whole central core of who a person is. And in that regard, she's right. He has done me worse wrong than I did him. They gave him some potential short term shame. He's made it his goal in life to destroy them at their core.
0: And Hawthorne makes that distinction more than one time, you know. And in Hawthorne's interpretation of good and evil. Evil is deliberate cruelty towards others, hate. Uh, and you can be cruel to people accidentally. You can, uh, you can hurt people, and people do. Hester has hurt Pearl. You know, Pearl's life has been defined by this event that's not her fault. And Hester understands that, and we, we see her struggle with that. She worries if it had been better if Hester had not been born uh, because of, of the guilt that she feels. So you can hurt people unintentionally. But then there's this side that he's making a very strong distinction of people who hurt deliberately and willingly. And that's a truer and deeper evil uh, that he's really trying to express. Well,
1: as being the non-literature person here, I appreciate you saying that because that is the vibe that I'm getting. That he's really portraying the very two different types of injury in people.
0: And one is worse, no, no doubt. All right, we switch gears, and we're going to see Pearl and all this stuff about Pearl interacting with nature. Is that thing that I, uh, I wanted you to see? Nature loves Pearl. Nature plays with Pearl. You know, the idea is God is amused. God is caring for her, which is is nice to think. I don't know. You know, you can have any kind of understanding of who God is. You may see the Christian God as a personal God. The god of Hawthorne isn't necessarily the Christian god. He's not really a personal god in the sense that uh, that a Christian would define the deity. But it is uh, an interacting goodness. And you see her playing in the pool and the boats and, and the sun is, 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 um, and the breeze. And, and it's wild and it's free and it's beautiful. And all this is interacting with Pearl. And then she makes the letter A. And and it brings us back to the big question of what does the letter A mean? The A is a constant motif in the book. A motif is something that repeats itself. So it's the title of the book. So it means it's the most important thing. We start with the A, which clearly means adultery. Then you see it mean angel when it's up there on that scaffold. And then you see it mean able. But it's always been red. And now you see that it's green. Now, green is another archetypal color, and it's the color of nature. It's the color of life. And when he makes the A green, he's saying something very important, in my mind, about what shame can do. Shame can hurt you, and it does hurt you, and the adultery did hurt her. But shame can be a source of life, in a very interesting sense. And he gives it life. It doesn't have to be death. And so Pearl makes... She changes the color of the A, and she puts it on her chest, and she makes it out of nature. And, of course, she says, Mother, it is the great letter A.
1: The great letter A. It is indeed changing. And Pearl, again, to me, just this this fountain of intuitive thinking starts a conversation, talking about her mother's scarlet letter, and then out of nowhere says, um brings up dimsdale why does the minister keep his hand over his heart and pearl is connecting the minister's heart and hester's letter and it's this intuitive childlike sense that she's bringing those two letters together and seeing them connected
0: well she says it's the same reason you wear the a for the same reason that the minister keeps his hand over his heart and of course uh
1: that's what I find fascinating. This is a seven-year-old child. Seven-year-old children usually are not very abstract thinkers, and she's never seen the letter A on Demsdale's chest. She just sees the passion that he has, and somehow she has sensed a connection between her mother and Demsdale, and she comes out with it.
0: Well, and it's interesting. Hester really wants to tell her what it means, and she goes, what reason is it? And you see it in her mind, and you see this mental struggle she wants to tell her, but she knows, as every mother does when you're talking with a child about complicated things, that she can't understand it, not in the sense that she wants it to, and she's afraid that the child will judge her. She's afraid that she'll, she'll lose the relationship with the, the do- with the child, and she says, I can't, I can't, I can't tell her, I can't pay it, I can't do it. It's not the price of the child's sympathy, And so she does something that she had never done. She flat out lies about why she wears the letter. And she says, I wear it for its gold thread.
1: Interesting. Because she's calculating this conversation with Pearl, and she's thinking Pearl is almost capable of intimacy. Pearl is almost able to take a step out of a mother-child relationship and become more, and then she backs away from that.
0: Well, and you have to remember... Pearl is a broken character. She's restless. She knows that there's something wrong. She's, she's got this sense of rebellion. She's got this sense of anger inside of her. And even she really can't understand it. And she is extremely un- unsympathetic to her mother in, 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 in every way at all points oh, in, in this book. All right, when we get to chapter 16, now we go to a forest walk. And, of course, this is great because this is where we're going to meet um, the reverend, and we're going to have this big encounter, and we're going to change the game. Uh, Reverend Dimmesdale uh, is coming down the road, and we have this what would seem to be an awkward conversation between Pearl and Mother, and, and they're talking about the sunshine. The sunshine does not love you. It runs away and hides because it's afraid of something on your bosom. Now see, there it is, playing a good way off. Stand you here and let me run and catch it. I am but a child. It will not flee from me, for I wear nothing on my bosom yet. And of course, we're seeing that thing that I told you about. The light doesn't shine on Hester. It won't shine on the A. And Pearl is mocking her mother in that way. The light lingers on the lonely child, but it won't shine on Hester. And, of course, this means, the obvious meaning is, well, God does not like Hester. That's how Hester feels about it. God doesn't like me. I did a bad thing, and God won't forgive me. God will never forgive me. And then we get this ridiculous story about the black man in the woods, which is, again, a political commentary of Hawthorne, making fun of the superstitions of of the Puritans. And really, not really superstitions as much as, the way they've black and whited everything mm. in their world. Uh, what do you think about that?
1: Oh, I think that's an interesting theme that he uh, hammers out a lot. And um, he does turn the Puritans into a straw man, into a punching bag that he can use. And there's some references later on that we'll address where I feel like that really comes out. So... Like I said in the beginning, I defended the Puritans. They're not as bad as Hawthorne's made them out to be.
0: <laughs> no, but people are, and we do... Well, people can't <laughs> be.
1: And, oh, there, there's nothing like uh, moralizing. And and what's interesting, a little side note, is that psychologically, sometimes morality is is about power. And they certainly use morality as a, as a will to power over people in the group.
0: And maybe the Puritans are just an easy way that, to talk about that without... Being critical. It's easy to make fun of people, you know, 400 years after they're dead and gone, they can't defend themselves. So yeah, it's easy to say that they believe there's a black man in the woods and he's going to come and you're going to do something. You're going to sign his, your name in his book and then uh, you're going to put this mark on your bosom. And and of course that can't possibly be true. Well, what was
1: interesting about all that discussion is that as Pearl is talking about it, to me, it looked like Pearl wasn't even afraid to discuss it. Like, I want to meet the black man. I want to see his book under his arm.
0: <laughs> because it's, it's ridiculous, and Pearl can see the ridiculousness of it. And, of course, her mom says, well, I did meet him one time. And, he, and this scarlet letter is his mark. And, of course, the chapter kind of is going to wind up with this reference to a brook. Now, a brook, again, this is you're getting into a little bit of literary symbolism, is Water. And water is an important theme or an important archetype. Water in all of, you know, all of literature is this flowing. It kind of represents eternity because water is a cycle. It comes around. But this water uh, is sad. It's melancholy. And when she interacts with it, it keeps saying, why does this sad, what does this sad look Brook? say, mom, mother, it if thou hast the sorrow of thine own, the brook might tell thee of it. So in other words, even the brook is really saddened by what he's seen in this society. He's saddened by what he's seen in, uh, in, in Hester. And Hester thinks they're sad at her, but we're going to understand later that they're just not. The brook is not sad at her, but he's sad at what has happened to her and in this sense, and at this moment, she's going to see the little minister walking up the path, haggard, nervous, despondent. And it, its he's beyond sad in the sense, and maybe this is clinical, I don't know. He's not, it says, death was too definite an object to be wished for or avoided. So he's not living, he's not wanting to die, he's just nothing.
1: Well, I have plenty of things to say about Dimsdale in the next chapter, but I wanted to mention a couple things about Pearl, as they're having this conversation where she's taunting her mother a little bit, Hawthorne has uh, Hester have the thought of she wanted a grief that should deeply touch her, meaning Pearl, and thus humanize and make her capable of sympathy. So Hester was almost wishing a a pain on her child so her child would be more sympathetic. Anyway, and then it goes on at, at the very end here. Pearl has one more uh, fit of intuition as the, uh, they see the minister approaching. And near the chapter, she asks about the minister, Why does he not wear it outside his bosom as thou dost, mother? So here's a child who's never seen Dimsdale with his shirt off, and yet she suspects there's a scarlet letter inside of him that matches the one his mother has on the outside thought, wow, this is a very insightful seven-year-old child.
0: And, of course, that's the question. Why doesn't he? Because mm-hmm. uh, he's hit it. All right, so Chapter 17, we, and this is kind of a, to me, I view this chapter as almost a cartoon Disney-like <laughs> thing because you have this, Arthur Dimsdale's is going to come up, and it says they're like ghosts, uh, two spirits intimately connected in a former life, but now stood cold-shuddering, in mutual dread, So it's this surreal setting uh, and they, they're they going to glide almost in a dreamlike sense into the woods and they're going to have this discussion. And he's going to look at Hester and he's going to say, Hester, hast thou found peace? And she's going to say, hast thou? And he's going to go, no, none, nothing but despair. And he's going to say, it's ironic. If I had been an atheist, I could have found peace, but I can't because I'm not an atheist. And they people revere me so much, and I'm such I'm in torment I'm in spiritual torment. I'm the most miserable. And of course, she says, "But everybody looks up to you. Look at all the good things that you do." So, just like her, he's been doing a lot of good for the community too. She has found peace in that, and he has not.
1: Well, that, an interesting divide occurs right here. To me, I, I call this chapter the deep discussion. You know, they're going to get into all kinds of things and. First of all, he starts off with, woe is me, I'm so poor, uh, talking to a woman who has suffered a great deal in the last seven years. He's not, clearly not demonstrating any empathy towards her, or at least saying, you are the only person who can understand my suffering. He doesn't even go there. Um, he goes on to the hopeless. And as I read about all this hopeless despair, I'm thinking, why can't he get past this moment of inauthenticity? That's what he labors over. He's got this one indiscretion in the past. He's got this lifetime of good works. And he is allowing the one indiscretion to completely define the whole rest of his life. So he's hung up on this idea of authenticity. He can't resolve the cognitive dissonance. And what I find very interesting about that is that most people resolve inauthenticity very well, very easily. Um, the whole clinical, psychological, and counseling therapy system exists to help people resolve their disconnects and their inauthenticities. Um, so why is Dimsdale so hung up on his authenticity to the point of everything else? Uh, I mean, even preachers can be very good at rationalizing their sin, and they don't, they don't seem to suffer at all the way that Dimsdale's made himself suffer because he can't resolve one mistake with the rest of his life. And I think it's really interesting because Walt Whitman, one of the um, writers of the tape, one, one of my favorite quotes of his is, So I contradict myself. There's an air of cavalierness about, Yeah, so I'm wrong. Um, but anyway.
0: Well, Walt Whitman was really honest about what it means to be human, and Dimsdale isn't. Mm-hmm. You know, he has this black and white notion of right and wrong, and good people do this, and bad people do this. And so. If I'm going to be a good person, then I have to be all this. And if I make one admission, then that makes me a bad person. So I can't be responsible for that because I'm not going to be a bad person. You're going to be a bad person.
1: And really, black and white thinking is childlike thinking. And we have we have Pearl exhibiting this complex, intuitive adult thinking, and Dimsdale showing all this simplistic, childlike reasoning.
0: And he really makes me mad because...
1: He's wearisome. I'm tired of him.
0: Well, and he's so, I hate to say it, damn selfish. I mean, here he is talking to this woman who has suffered publicly way more than him, and we have to talk about him. He even makes her suffering about him. He goes, happy are you, Hester, that wear the scarlet letter opening. Mine burns in secret. So in other words... My problems are worse than your problems, and I want us to make that clear.
1: And not only that, I have this problem of everybody loving me and thinking I'm so wonderful and it's such a burden. You know, that does fail to say out loud, Tess.
0: Oh, it's horrible. And she tries to correct them, and she says, you know, you've done all this stuff. Uh, you have deeply and sorely repented. Your sin is left behind you in the days long past. So basically, get over yourself. Live in the present. Let the past go. Is there no reality in the penance thus sealed and witnessed by good works, or wherefore you should it not bring you peace?
1: And here we see how shame has liberated Hester at this point, and shame has confined Dimsdale. There just couldn't be a more stark contrast between the two and how they process the sense of shame. And and that's almost not even the main point of what this chapter is about. She's there to tell him something.
0: Well, and... He can't think past it. He can't think past it because he's going to. He goes on to say, ironically, if there was just one person in the world that knew, uh, uh, that could, could understand what I'm going through, I think that I could like survive. And then she's going to say, "Well, now that you bring that up, <laughs> there there might be this one person." Um, and 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 then she's going to. Uh, break it out and say um, he's going to say an enemy and under my own roof what me knew and then of course when he finds out that she's known this this whole time he's going to fall down on the ground he's, he's going to say oh Arthur forgive me and again she takes the responsibility and all things else I have striven to be true truth was that one virtue what I might have held fast and did hold fast through all extremity Save when the good, the life by fame was put in the question. But then I can sit into a deception. So bottom line is, the reason why she kept the secret of who Chillingsworth was is because had she told Chillingsworth, Demstel would have died. They would have hung him for what he'd done. So she she really didn't really have a choice. Uh, But he goes on to say, um, That old man, the physician, he whom they call Roger Chillingworth... He was my husband. The minister looked at her for an instant with all that violence of passion, and he, which intermixed in more shapes than one with his higher, pure, softer qualities was in fact the portion of him which the devil claimed, and through which he sought to win the rest. Never was there a blacker or fiercer frown than Hester now encounters. So he looks at her with a devilish and demonic look that he's never looked at anybody else, and of course he sinks to the ground and buries his face in his hands.
1: And now we see another uh, example of romanticism, because when he pulls himself together, he says, that old man's revenge has been blacker than my sin. He has violated in cold blood the sanctity of a human heart.
0: Which is absolutely true. But I want to back up, because he goes on, before he says that, he says, I can't forgive you. And of course, she goes into mommy. Zone. I love this because he's acting like a child, so she's going to treat him like a child. She goes, "Yes, you can. Thou shalt forgive me. You're going to forgive me." And at the end of this, he's going to say, "Okay, I forgive you, Hester." You he just obeys her. I freely forgive you. May God forgive us both. And then that's, of course, the line uh, that you just recited. And then he's going to say, "Thou, what we did, thou and I, we never did what he did." And of course, she said, "No." For as evil as it was, as wrong as it was, as against the law as it was, it had a consecration of its own. We felt it so. We said so to each other, hast thou forgotten? And you see this admission of after all these years, she loves him.
1: And as they continue that discussion, he's going to come back to a theme and end up on this idea. And he's going to say, the judgment of God is upon me. It's like he can't just stay in the moment. And I find that interesting because God gets a lot of blame for Dimsdale's self-obsession. Every time he goes into a bout of self-obsession, God's going to get blamed somehow for it. I find that interesting. And so Hester takes the tactic of, okay, well, now that we've outed Chilling's Worth and now that we've talked you out of your pity party, let's run away. The whole entire world is out there.
0: Well, before we get to that, He has to have another pity party because he's going to say, oh no, now that Roger Chillingworth knows that you told me, he's going to expose. So he immediately, again, makes it about himself. And of course he's going to say, think for me, Hester, thou art strong, resolve for me. So, I mean, he cannot make one decision at all. And this
1: is a man who's clearly regarded as the most intellectually capable person in the whole entire colony.
0: Well, and then that's what she says. She says, um, you know, we could leave. Uh, And you have to wonder what has given Hester strength and what has done this to Demsdale. Surely he wasn't always this horrible. She wouldn't have liked him. Uh, But I don't know. Is there an answer to that?
1: Oh, only in Hawthorne's mind.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So they make this decision. She's going to say, well, the world is bigger than this town. You are free. You can go. Uh, There's a broad path to the sea. And he's going to say, she says, you can go to the Indians. You can go to Europe. Go anywhere else. And he's going to say, I am powerless to go. Wretched and sinful as I am. I have had no other thought than to drag on my earthly existence in the sphere where providence has placed me. Again, like you said, putting it on God. God wants. God has called me to this spot, so I'm going to stay here. I'm not even going to think about any other thing. And it isn't God. What is it that's making him not leave?
1: Well, he's, to me, he's like an abuse victim that has lost all of his sense of self-efficacy. Which Hester seems to be finding, and because Hester's on the outside, she has the outsider's, the uh, outlier's point of view, she's starting to gain a level of self-efficacy that she can make things change, and he's not there yet.
0: Well, she's giving him a little bit of a pep talk. She's going to go into this mommy mode, and she's going to say, Thou art crushed under the seven years' weight of misery, but thou shalt leave it. All behind thee. It shall not cumber thy steps as thou treadest along the forest path. Neither shalt thou fright the ship with it. If thou prefer the cross to sea, leave this wreck and ruin here where it might have happened. Metal, it's hard to read this because it's in that crazy dialect, but metal no more with it. Begin all anew. Hast thou exhausted possibility in the failure of this one trial? Not so. The future is yet full of trial and success. There is happiness to be enjoyed. There is good to be done. Exchange this false life of thine for a true one. Be if thy spirit, summon thee on a mission, a teacher, an apostle of the red man, or as is more thy nature, a scholar or a a sage, the wisest, most renowned of the cultured world. Preach. And these are short, periodic, telegraphic sentences to, to, to highlight the emphasis here. Preach. Write, act, do anything save to lie down and die. Give up this name of Arthur Dimsdale and make thyself another. The idea being, don't be defined by anything except for the future and who you want to be.
1: And I see that as we end chapter 17, Dimsdale is going to resist every positive thought. <laughs> he is... He is fighting any positivity from Hester tooth, finger, and claw at this point, but that will change.
0: Well, and it comes down to something that you've told me before in other contexts. He can't get out alone. And when people get stuck in in this in the abuse or, or whatever it is, they can't get out. And he says, Alone, Hester, I can't and when she says, Thou shalt not go alone, then all was spoken. In other words, the game changed Mm -hmm. oh
1: yes there's a lifeline there's there's somebody else to help give me some courage to do that and yeah that's very very common um abuse victims many times don't get out of their abuse alone somebody has to find a way in there to help them just like hester has done
0: and of course um chapter 18 is just kind of fun Um so often and so this is a change Author gazes into Hester's face and there's going to be hope and joy and boldness, things that are different. Um, The Scarlet Letter was her passport into regions where other women dared not tread, shame, despair, and solitude. These had been her teachers, stern and wild, but they had made her strong, but taught her much offense. And of course, where we're going with this is that She's lost something. She's gained something, but she lost something, and she's going to get it back. Remember, she'd been the Sister of Mercy. She'd been the nun. She'd been asexual. And he can give her something that she couldn't give herself, and he could love her. So we see this in a minute. They decide to flee. Uh, The the decision was made. Uh, A glow of strange enjoyment threw its flickering brightness over the trouble of his breast, and he's going to say, do I feel joy again? And he starts he starts to change. Uh, this is already a better life. And she's going to say, don't look back. The past is gone. And then when she does this, she does this thing that you see in Disney movies all the time. Like the woman takes off her hat and her hair and she's going to fling it into the wind. And she, you know, shakes her head and the hair comes down. Uh, taking it from her bosom. She takes the, the A and she's going to fling it uh, as far as she can. And it's going to hit the edge of the brook. But unfortunately, it doesn't fall in the brook, which is a little bit of a negative foreshadowing. But when that happens, beauty brings, comes back. Uh, she takes the cap and it says this. A crimson flush was glowing on her cheek that had been so long pale her sex, her youth, the whole richness of her beauty came back from what men call the irrevocable past and clustered themselves with her maiden hope and a happiness before unknown. It says, all at once, as with a sudden smile of heaven, birth for forth, birth, ah, forth burst the sunshine, pouring a very flood into the obscure forest. And this is nice because what has happened is. She takes off the a. she takes down her hair, she looks at Dimsdale, there's love, and the, and the heavens open up, and sun shines down. And the reader understands for the first time, it's dark, not because God didn't like what she did or who she was, but he didn't like that she was wearing her shame. And the minute she took it off, her beauty came back, and the sun shines on her again.
1: And... We cannot highlight that idea enough right there. To me, that's the, a huge turning point in the whole story, that perspective change. I find it interesting, and this is why I think Hawthorne is really amazing, He, the way he writes and describes a person in transition. When you watch somebody have this sea change in their whole worldview and their mind, and it leads into a degree of freedom they've never had before. It it's an amazing thing to watch. And I wonder, who did Hawthorne know? Who did he, what person did he see this in? Because it's an amazing thing. And he says, The stigma gone, Hester heaved a long deep sigh in which the burden of shame and anguish departed from her spirit. Oh, exquisite relief. And here's what I think stands out. She had not known the weight until she felt the freedom. Hmm. So, it, there's just this amazing transformation of now she she's gonna be able to divest herself very quickly of a lot of dead weight.
0: And of course such was the sympathy of nature, the wild heathen nature of the forest, never subjugated by human law nor illumined by higher truth with the bliss of these two spirits. Love, whether newly born or aroused from a deathbed slumber, must always create a sunshine filling the heart so full of radiance that it overflows upon the outward world. And he's making a a religious commentary. The essence of God is not rules. The essence of God is, is love and forgiveness. And that includes forgiving yourself.
1: Which is an interesting point that the minister was never aware of.
0: And of course, she immediately thinks, ooh, I want you to meet Pearl, which is a whole nother complication. And of course, every mother... When she finds a man that she falls in love with, and this is really true, I think of divorced kids here. You know, you have like this stepdad or whatever, and you, oh, you're gonna love him, you're gonna love him, and they never love him. And of course, this is her mistaken. You know, it's such a typical thing. Oh, I want you to meet my child. And of course, the
1: which is Dimsdale's child. Also,
0: yeah, but he doesn't know it, and she you knows sure. it's not really. And so she goes, "You're gonna love the kid," and he goes, "I'm the kid's not gonna love me." Oh yeah, the kid's gonna love you. And of course, the kid doesn't love her, uh, doesn't love him at all. But anyway, so she falls off. She, I mean, she she calls out, um, "You'll love her. Go get her. We'll go get her." Pearl is out there playing uh, with nature, and of course, it hyperbolizes her relationship. She plays with a partridge, with a pigeon, with a squirrel, <laughs> with a fox. And at one point, and of course, Hawthorne says maybe this isn't true, but they say that a wolf came up and smelled of Pearl's robe and offered his savage head to be patted on by her head. So all of nature is <laughs> it bends to Pearl. She is the embodiment of of this wild. She's the embodiment of this wild expression of love, which is, of course, the love of, of Pearl. I mean, of her mom and her dad. So they come in there and. Uh, and he's going to meet her. That will love her dearly, uh, and of course, they're going to introduce um, each other. And that doesn't—it doesn't go as well. It goes as well as, as you would expect, but not as well as Hester expected. So she's—and she's actually going to comment a little bit about that. Um, she says she's fitful. She's a fantastic little elf. She says I know that um, there's stuff wrong with her. Uh, but she loves me, and she will love you. And of course, he remembers that she has been kind to him. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he he does too. He goes twice in her lifetime. Uh, she uh, she was kind to me, and she's going to say, and you pleaded so bravely on her behalf. She'll she'll remember that. And of course, Pearl shows up. She's this beautiful embodiment of all that is good in the world but she senses there's something going on between this man and she her mother.
1: and that's what stood out to me. They're trying to summon her to come meet them, and it says the child and mother were estranged, but through Hester's fault, not Pearl's. Since the latter rambled from her side, another inmate had been admitted when, within the circle of the mother's feelings, and so modified the aspect of them all that Pearl, the returning wanderer, could not find her wanted place and hardly knew where she was. This highly intuitive child automatically felt displaced by Dimsdale being in the
0: picture. Well, and every kid understands that. You're threatened. Wait, my mommy loves me. Who who the heck are you? And, of course, um, she looks at her mom, and there's a couple things that are physically different about her mom that bother her. Um, One of them, of course, is her hair, and the other one is the A. So what does she do? She gathers up the heavy tresses of her hair and confines them beneath her cap, and then she takes the A, uh, and she's going to put it back on. And she says she had drawn an hour of free breath, but after that, she's going to put that A back on. And, of course, spoiler, she's never going to take it off again. And of course, she says, um, "Well, Hester says uh, you're not being kind because she's talking to the way. Well, this (laughs) is—it's kind of funny. A Dimsdale in this awkwardness. He's trying to connect with the child, and I can imagine, you know, oh, I want this kid to like me. So he goes down and he tries to kiss her, and she just like super reacts to this. She runs to the brook and washes it off." Uh, That's about as much rejection as you can manage for a seven-year-old. Yes. And then she asked this question. Doth he love us? Will he go back with us hand in hand? We three, there's that number again, together in the town. And, of course, Hester says no, he's not going to. Um, And will he always keep his hand over his heart? And, of course, the mom is a little bit annoyed, of course, by this uh, and, of course, at the end of the chapter, we have the scene with the with Pearl and the kiss. Uh, and then we end the chapter, and now this fateful interview had come to a close. The dell was to be left, a solitude among its dark old trees. So we have this vision of nature. What does nature think about all this? With their multitudinous tongues, which whisper long of what had passed there, and no mortal to be the wiser. And the melancholy brook would add this other tale to the mystery With which its little heart was already overburdened and whereof it still kept up a murmuring babble with not a whit more cheerfulness of tone than for ages heretofore. Kind of suggesting that the river has seen this before and it's not, it's, it's still melancholy. So I don't know. Take it for what it's worth.
1: Well, and my last thought on this too is Pearl has this another, uh, another flash of intuition and asks, does he love us? And basically wants to know, will he own us publicly? And when the mom defers and basically says, not yet, she will not embrace Dimsdale. And I think that's important to remember that as long as he won't publicly own her, she will not privately own him.
0: And hence ends chapter 19.
1: All right, well, to sum up a few things that we've looked at here today, um, Hester has confronted Chillingsworth. She's put him on notice as she tends to expose him. She has her secret rendezvous in the, in the forest with Dimsdale. They talk about their relationship. They decide they're going to make a run for it. They bring little Pearl into the picture. And uh, what do we need to look forward to next time we're together?
0: Well, the next time we're going to gather is the big reveal. The final scaffold scene. And what does it all mean? Next time on How to Love Live.